Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I ride our bicycles into a pole with a new two-hour episode featuring a very long discussion about the Teen Titans, new and not-so-new, as well as the launch of all-new, all-different Marvel, a bit about The Force Awakens as it relates to the current crop of Marvel Star Wars books, a little bit about high school debut by Kazuni Kawahara, and a bumper crop of non-comic book-related personal anecdotes. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Happy New Year! Hey, Happy New Year to you! Man, you beat me to my opening line. How original are we? Oh my goodness. We, uh, well, and it is the first show of January. We're not original at all. If we didn't say Happy New Year, I think people might either think that we've already talked this year, or just that we some, maybe recorded this in December? Yeah, that like, would be great. It would be weird. That would be so funny. It's like they just, just like our first four shows of the year. Turns out they were all stockpiled from like a middle of December, like where we talked for like sixteen hours. <laughs> and the last one is just us getting goofy as shit, yeah. and no one can tell. I was like, last one, like at sixteen hours, you could pretty much count on me being nothing but goof from three hour in. But you're right. Who could tell? Probably nobody. Probably nobody. So, uh, how is your 2016 treating you, Mr. McMillan? Well, I hope. Uh, 2016 so far has been fine, apart from, and I did tell you this in email, uh, the the one-day snowmageddon in in Portland. Oh, yeah, right. That led to me. For listeners who don't know about this, we had snow on the Sunday after New Year, and it was lovely. And it it was like, literally, you wake up in the morning and everything is white. And it hadn't been snowing the night before. Wow. Uh, and it was, it was beautiful. And I went out and it was all like, every, Portland doesn't do snow well. No. Portland, in fact, not. Portland does snow actively badly. <laughs> uh, and so lots of people were just like, oh, watch out. Oh, but you know, snow, it's, it's, it's going to do terrible things to you. And me stupidly was like, oh, what are you, what are you talking about old people? Everything's going to be fine. And then fell in the middle of the roads, like slipped an ice. Oh. But I don't remember it. I literally remember stepping off the sidewalk. And then I remember being on the ground and people running towards me. It really kind of panicked. Oh, man. So I'm guessing whatever happened was dramatic. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, and, and I mean, they were very, very – they were like, can you stand up? Are you okay? And I was I was achy, obviously. I'd, I clearly landed on my side. Mm-hmm. But I, I, what I was most concerned about was I no longer had my phone. <laughs> like my phone was in my hand and then it wasn't when I woke up. I woke, woke up, so was aware of what was going on. Right. Uh, and it's because my phone was like a car length away. <laughs> I'd get it on the ice. Uh, I, I was fine, surprisingly. Mm. Like, completely unharmed. But uh, honestly, I can't believe you're standing up. Are you all right? Do you need, like, you know, let me help you. Why isn't old man to the other side? <laughs> you know, uh, you did not tell me that you sort of lost consciousness for a moment. I don't think I lost consciousness as much as I think I just blacked this shit out. I've told you about my bike accident, right? No. A couple of years ago? I don't think so. That, that I, Because uh, people were watching this. And again, I have no memory. Uh, the bike hit a post 
and I apparently did a flip over the post with the bike, uh, and like me and the bike landed uh, apparently very dramatically to the point where people thought I landed on my neck. Um, but I I remember none of it. Wait, and you were twelve? No, no, this is like two years ago. Jeff. Oh my god, Graham, these stories are terrifying. You've never told me either of these stories, and in both cases. If I'd been there, I totally would have like yelled and pointed until you went to a medical professional to make sure you didn't have a concussion. Well, there you go. Oh my God, you've got to! I don't you watch American TV? A concussion is like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Jeff, I fell down in the ice. It's and blacked like, out and blacked out. No, when you were I like, oh, you fell on the ice and I read that in the email. I'm like, oh, poor Graham. He must have looked like a foolish old man. When you're like, and when I came to, I'm like, back the fuck like, up. What I, what I really just mean is like, I don't like I've literally. Yes, lost. Graham, I understand. I, I see you keep trying to linguistically finesse your way out of blacked out. <laughs> you're, you're not. It's not going to happen. You're not going to convince me that you did not black out by saying. Things like no, Jeff. I just simply forgot everything that happened between the time I hit something and the time people ran up to me. That's not how it works. I'm not like, oh, I understand. You had other things on your mind. <laughs> you had blacked out, and you should have gone and gotten checked out for a concussion. That is ridiculous, ridiculous. Next time that happens, go get yourself checked out for a concussion. Or uh, I. I'm really hoping there's not next time. Let's just put Well, me neither, but you basically held off on having the bike accident that everyone has at eight until just a few years ago. (laughs) Who knows what else you've got up your sleeve? That was was me learning to ride a bike two years ago. (sighs) Wait, you never learned to ride a bike? Yeah, I, I couldn't ride a bike. Have we never talked about this in the podcast? Oh my god, I do I not think could, we have. Because I, I, I could have sworn we had talked about this in the podcast. Oh, I'm totally sure. What do you think of Doctor Strange? Oh, it's not bad. It's <laughs> it was just like you know, like learning to ride a bike again. You, know, you just get right back on it. I I have no idea what you're talking about, Jeff. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I I didn't know how to ride a bike until a couple of years ago. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That totally explains the whole accident part that you were just talking about a few minutes ago. Okay, now I don't, and and it's totally great. It's awesome. Everyone's got their own things that they've never learned how to do with me. It's a shockingly huge agenda. But just out of curiosity, uh, why why the delay? Why the delay there? Um, I, I mean, because it's not like you like drive a car very often so and i can't um i the short version is i just don't go anywhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's it i just don't i I, although i'll i'll get to part two of that response to that in a second um i remember my parents well my dad really trying to teach me to ride a bike Uh when i was like small small Mm mm-hmm um, and <laughs> okay. I just kept. You've got to qualify that just a little bit because I'm like six weeks, eight weeks. Like, what are we talking about here? I want to say like three. You when you were three, okay, yeah, fair enough. That and that is really young, yeah. Um, because he was also teaching my sister, who's like eleven months older. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think it was like he was just like, I'll do both. Of the <laughs> right, exactly. Um, wow. And and it just it didn't take, and it didn't take enough that like I remember just, and I can remember where I was when all this happened, like repeatedly falling over. Mm-hmm. Like I would do fine. And then all of a sudden I'd be like, Oh, I'm balancing on two wheels. and would fall over. Sure. I get that. Yeah. Um, 
and I, then I guess it just stopped. Like wait, I don't, I don't. The, the riding the bike stopped, not the falling yeah. over part. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was about to say because traditionally the the you do realize the other part that stops is the falling over part. Yeah. Right? No, but the the the. The, even the lessons I don't remember continuing, like right. for very long. Wow! Uh, and then it just—it never was a thing. Like Jeff, you know me. I love to walk, mm-hmm. I, and I think in many ways I was just like, "I'll walk. It's fine. If you could cycle, you could walk." You uh, uh, sure? I, yeah, okay, I see that. Mm-hmm. Cycling was really not a thing amongst my social circle. Really, until I moved to Portland, so it never really came up again. Uh huh. Uh huh. Huh. And then I was like, I'm whatever age it was, like thirty eight, thirty nine. Right. I'm. Just, I'm just like. I started to ride a bike. Oh yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Wow. So do you? So you know how to ride a bike? Or it's yeah. great. And do you do it often? Do you, do you want to know the funniest thing about learning, though? That I was. I'm going to say thirty eight. I could be wrong. Right. Um. And I'm learning and. A neighbor decided that it's going to be like she's gonna she's gonna teach me. Do you know what I mean? It was one of those. She was like, I think it's really good that you're actually doing this now, and that you're not embarrassed, and you're just doing it. That's great. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna help you to uh, help you to learn to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. And so she and I go to like a a, a playground, a school playground, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to to learn. And it's me and this like four year old girl learning to ride a bike. Oh uh, and this four year old girl. Hilariously, because she's four, mm-hmm. it's pretty much like you don't know how to ride a bike. Yeah, the, the entire time, and of course, got it much faster than I did. It was just like you suck. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I genuinely thought that was the funniest thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Graham! Wow, that's that's that is just a stunning chain of stories. Stunning chain from I don't know what a concussion means. <laughs> To I didn't learn how to ride a bike until I was 38. That's just Wait, remarkable. We're doing good for the start of the podcast this year, huh? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because this really is—it's like the candid, the candid McMillan podcast. I'm like, I should ask you more questions because, like, during your teen years, like, you didn't have like. Because I uh, see, I grew up out in the middle of fucking nowhere, and believe me, my natural inclinations towards sloth. You'd think that I – well, first off, l- learning to ride a bike was completely traumatic because we we grew up out in the middle of nowhere, but the roads around us um, were in use by uh, logging trucks, enormous fucking horrible things. And so we were always told, like, stay off the road. So there was no – if we were going to learn how to drive, uh, ride a bike, we, we were going to learn in our driveway, which would be fine, except our driveway was basically – 60% hill, 65% hill, and my parents <laughs> were big fans of parking their cars, not in the garage, not in the current way where it's like, oh, I have so much of my own shit spilling out everywhere, I will shove it in the garage and then park my car in the driveway. Just more of a... Uh, why would I put my car in the driveway? Yeah, why, what's the... I mean, part of the charms of living out in nowhere is you can pretty much stop the car... Like, get out of the car. Don't take the keys out. Don't even bother closing the door half the time, much less locking it. So I guess that's why. But anyway, all of which is to say, learning to ride a bike was really traumatic for me because it it involved colliding with the back of uh, (laughs) my parents' cars a lot because it was just like, okay, just go down this hill, now break. How do I do that again? Curse back. 
So my best friend in college, uh, he was an avid biker. Actually, he's like the one person before I moved to Portland who, like, I would say, like, was genuinely into biking. Mm-hmm. Um, and he repeatedly tell horror stories about him learning to ride a bike, which was really similar. His dad would take him up to a hill. Mm-hmm. and just push him on the bike down the hill. Oh, Jesus. And yeah. every single time he fell over, his dad would just, like, tell him to get back up to the hill and literally push him down. And that was how he learned to ride because the alternative was he would just continue to fall down on a hill <laughs> on a bike. <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, that is also getting back to the, you know, the Scottish dentistry story that I love to tell. The just, you know... Things are terrible. Things yeah. are all horrible. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's it. I wasn't even in Scotland. So the fact that I actually had to learn that way, you know, um, was, is, is horrifying. But I mean, you know, and then later I had to then ride down those, you know, ridiculous logging truck infested roads if I wanted to go anywhere or do anything. So well, yeah, I think that's it as well. I think that when you live somewhere like that, mm-hmm. where things are distant, mm-hmm. That cycling has a lot more allure because it is a sense of like you have to go a certain distance in order to do anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas in my hometown, it was like you walk for ten minutes. So you were kind no, of in the Scottish central town burbs. Well, you were in a town, so you were in a town. I was, town. I was in a town, but like I could have walked to the town centre within fifteen minutes. Oh, I see. And my and my school was five minutes walk away. If oh, that. okay, okay. Well, like then, everything right. was super close. Right. Why would you put on a, why would you get on a bike because you would basically well, overshoot is, everything by the time that you could even But now that break. I'm thinking about it, so I'm also like, yeah, I grew up with two sisters and I want to say there was only one bike in the entire house. Oh yeah. So clearly none of us were cyclists. Well, I, you know, maybe. I mean, that, that's kind of a thing. We only had one bike in the house. I, well, that's not true. We had the little b- do nothing bikes that we were trained on, you know, where the training wheels stayed on. In my case, for an embarrassingly long time, and then finally came. Hey, Jeff, I just, I just said that I learned to ride a bike at thirty-eight. I think you, you're fine. Oh yeah, no, I believe me. That's why I was able to share that little detail without too much embarrassment. But I mean, let's face it, I, I was incredulous just a few minutes earlier, so I am sort of exposing a softer uh, underside here. So, but it's true, I, it, the, the training wheels did come off before I hit double digits. So I guess I, yeah, but I think, I think you're fine, Jeff. So there was this rusty three speed that uh, we had to take if we ever wanted to go anywhere. Uh, And, and me and each of my brothers, cause I don't know, it was just when I was growing up, like bikes were expensive. Maybe they're expensive now, but everyone has them and, or they're cheaper than cars or something. But I just, yes, they're cheaper than cars, Jeff. That's kind of the way a bike works. I was trying to open it up rhetorically because I obviously don't own a bike now, nor would I really want the the people who who ride bikes in San Francisco are um, both like I don't know, you know, they're kind of. Um, I think you've got to really want to ride a bike in San Francisco. Yeah, boy, that's like, for Portland's sure. a very bike friendly town. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, Portland's yeah. Really, you can go anywhere on bikes, and you know, whereas San Francisco is. No, it's well. The thing that's amazing about San Francisco is a bicyclists will go anywhere on their bikes. I mean, I think that's the problem. It's just like, um, well, you know what it is. Portland is is the new genesis 
of bicycle riders. You know, everyone's friendly. <laughs> they signal, you know, and this is apocalypse. This is – there are people who ride their bikes here. There's a lot of people, but they're all, most of them are insane and they're mean uh, and they're violent and uh, – Parademons. Of- yeah, they're parademons. They are parademons, and they will go anywhere. We spent all that they they spent ridiculous amounts of money putting in like a bike lane along uh, the road really close to where I live, one of the main thoroughfares. And it's one of those bike lanes that like goes with traffic for a while, and then when you hit like this whole intersection highway intersection where you've got underpasses and overpasses and blah blah blahs, there's this extensive. Um, sort of bike path detour that cuts right through the heart of it, pops you out on the other side. The number of bicyclists that just are like, no, I'm not going to do that is, is amazing. Like people were like, they put in this enormous bike, extensive numbers of, of bike lanes in Valencia, uh, along Valencia. And people were still like, I'd really rather go down South Van Ness where it's like two lanes each, you know, on each side, it's narrow and every other car is double parked. That's where I want to be. Like, it's just, there is, there is, it's impossible. It is impossible. You cannot placate the bicyclists in this town. They are, they are a bloodthirsty mob. And, uh, uh, and I mean that in an admiring way and please don't run over me. So, um, Welcome, Botnats, to Wait What, a comic book podcast. <laughs> we worked in an apocalypse in New Genesis reference. I, I was pretty impressed with this. When you said New Genesis, I actually thought you were talking about either the Bible, Genesis, or the prog rock band, fronted by Peter Gabriel and then Phil Collins. Oh my god. Graham, you've been uh, away from I, comic books too long. Uh, you know, this is the sad thing. I swear to God, pretty much the only comic books I've read in the last week or so uh-huh. have been fucking Teen Titans comic books. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of wanted. To, I I was I read your little piece and uh, what? Oh, but I, I I read more than that, uh, Jeff. No, I've no, read, no, I'm sure. I've read those three omnibuses. I right. read four trades of the New Fifty Two series. Wow. And the first three issues of Titan Hunt, the current mm. series. Whoa. Wow. I am in the fucking Teen Titan zone, and I don't know why. Uh, are you well? Are you enjoying it? I mean, because in the in yeah, in the piece that you have on the website, you of course talk. I think you make a really good case for the the sort of why the Wolfman Perez stuff doesn't get um, the praise uh, it some, including me, mm-hmm. might think deserves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I, I, so I, I read the for those who have not read the, the post on on waitwhatpodcast dot com. That's right. I'm working in the link. Nice. Um, I before the holidays asked on Twitter why doesn't Marv Wolfman get the sort of critical reappraisal that Claremont did mm-hmm. uh, for his Teen Titans run, which essentially lasts the same amount of time. It's like sixteen years versus seventeen years. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of people came up with lots of suggestions. Uh, and their suggestions were really interesting mm-hmm. because a lot of the suggestions really speak to the lack of institutional memory for comics. Oh, because yeah. A, a lot of people, a lot of like smart people who know about comics history uh, for Marvel mm-hmm. were basically being like, well, Teen Titans was never a hit and it <laughs> never really did anything that was groundbreaking. Wow. You know, and it's like, that's a sign that like, 
Teen Titans is, is in this really weird shape. Yeah, yeah. So as yeah. a franchise, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it didn't come. It didn't have any original characters, and it was like, well, but it did. Like mm-hmm. that was the new Teen Titans whole fucking thing. Yeah, for the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so as a result of this, and as a result of seeing that basically that these books existed mm-hmm. uh, from the library, I got the three Teen Titans omnibuses, mm-hmm. which collect. Issues 1 through 50 of the first t- uh, New Teen Titans series. Mm-hmm. Which is with, the first two on the buy, basically? Is, or is that first 50 issues? Ba- it's basically the first three on the buy. Oh, okay. uh, the third on the buy then collects, completely randomly, the first six issues of the Baxter series from 1984, which mm-hmm. is still from Perez, except Perez is off by the fifth issue. Right. Um, then it collects issues 50 through... I think it's 50 through 61 and 61 through 70, huh. uh, which is basically when Perez came back to the book mm, okay. in like 90, 1990 mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and even then he's off super early as well and he's basically being co-plotter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the idea is they're trying to collect all of the Wolfman and Perez Right. That stories. makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it, it makes for a really odd reading experience because the first 50 issues – are Wolfman and Perez as the Beatles, right? Where, mm-hmm. where they, they're playing off each other really well and they're both egging each other on, mm-hmm. like, really, really well. And, and each story gets a little bit more ambitious. Yeah. Um, to the point where you... The Judas Contract, which is really oddly Teen Titans Dark Phoenix saga. Yes. And by the way, I, I could be totally wrong, but the Dark Phoenix saga does come first. I do yes, honestly feel... significantly. Yeah, okay. So just... Because I saw someone... I don't know if you, the way you phrased it or maybe someone in uh, one of the comments made it sound like they were contemporaneous, and I'm like... Oh, yeah, yeah, not... Because Teen Titans yeah. started in 80, and I went Dark Phoenix was like 81, Right? Uh, 81 sounds a little early maybe maybe it's 81 or 82 i don't know i should i should be more on top of that i admit it but it's changed (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm I'm looking up right now if the internet behaves Mm -hmm. the suspense no the internet is not behaving oh yes it is come on internet you can do it you You can can tell me this come on or maybe it can Hmm. Should I check on my end? Because I'm already <laughs> like... It's Jeff, talk amongst yourself. Why do they never really do the publication thing on 1980. Is it? Oh, yeah, October 1980. Wow, okay. So I am really wrong. And yeah, yeah. the so, Judas contract so is much later, 83 or something 84. like that? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's 84. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a significant... Because when the Baxter series starts... Mm-hmm. Uh, like, that's... that's John Romita is already on the uh, X-Men. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's right. Gone exactly. through, it's gone through Cockrum, Burn, Cockrum again, and Smith. Yeah. By the time, yeah. you know, uh, you're arguably at the the end of the glorious days for Claremont's X-Men by the time that, that uh, the Baxter series starts mm-hmm. and the Judas Tract happens. But it's it's we- really weird to me how much that series, uh, that storyline echoes Dark Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That, and it, it comes roughly 40 issues in. Mm-hmm. The same way that Dark Phoenix did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really strange. But anyway, after uh, Judas Contract, the book has nowhere to go. Like, it's yeah. it's visible mm-hmm. that, that they're like, well, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so would you get the so that that storyline ends at forty one, forty two, or I, something. I, can I can I take a can I take a stab at an alternate theory? And this yeah, is yeah, to, cool, totally cool. without me having read them in a bajillion years. Uh, uh, is that with the Teen Titans? Like like you said, the Judas contract is like is it? It's kind of a groundbreaker, you know, in terms of like it's this big four part storyline that crosses over into the annual and all this awesome stuff. And um, there, there's a few things in that I think that that was sort of where Wolfman and Perez were trying to. That's when uh, what's his name, uh, annoying blonde guy, comes out Very of that. Cool. Yeah, Jericho comes out of there, and it. I think. I think between Jericho and some other stuff, it was like, okay, we want we want to introduce a new Titan that we think is super significant. We and there's a a big. I feel like they wanted to spend the next batch of issues after that, more or less focusing on the, like almost seeing if they could get away with doing a a. Um, superhero comic without the superheroics, you know, it was very much uh, we're going to do personal dramas, you know, and and I don't think it was necessarily like a we're flailing about. I think it was very much kind of this idea of um, we're we're going we're we're really the idea of doing a superhero book, taking the taking a big superhero book and then sort of changing instead of just doing the Claremont one-off issue after the conclusion of the epic where everyone's sitting around in normal dress sort of ruminating that they were going to do a lot more of that leading up to like 150 and then change gears again. Um, but, 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 but yeah, really, I, I agree with you to an extent, but the reason I say it's flailing, flailing is actually the Nets' big storyline after Judas Contract is the, the launch of the Baxter series. Right. Right? Yeah. And that is essentially a retread of the very first storyline that they did. Yeah. Because it's it's Raven and, and Trigon again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I think it's flailing because whereas before there really was a, like an ambition of, you know, okay, we've done this, you know, we've done the demon storyline. We're doing, you know, the space or uh, no, the revival of the Doom Patrol and it, like, you know, uh, supervillain civil wars, mm-hmm. space, you know, fuck space. We've now got, you know, we're doing this. We're being socially relevant. Their yeah. runaways issues are hilarious in retrospect. You, their sincerity is all over the page. Yes. But it's clear that, like, Marv Wolfman had never actually ever, you know, met a real runaway. <laughs> but, had, you know, had, had watched all the primetime specials. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it's 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 pitiful but well-meaning. But, you know, they're doing all these things and they're, they're trying to be more... You know what can what can we do within the superhero genre? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so your theory of well, what if you take the superheroes out of the superhero genre? Mm-hmm. Kind of holds water. It would make sense because they are really pushing at the envelope. Yeah. But then when they return to the superhero dom, yes, it, it's utterly lacking the let's do something else, and instead is. Let's do the same thing we did before. Well, I'm I'm sort of wondering if there was a desire, sort of the way that that Lucas went back to the Star Wars trilogy and was like, mm, let me touch him up, you know. Is I wonder if there was a little bit of the, 
you know, now that we really have our chops sharpened, let's go back and do the stuff with the tri with Trigon that that we wanted to do the first time, but we just felt like we weren't there. And what's interesting is is they're not there again. I remember I don't... they're 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 not only not there, there's actually no meat to the second tri- story, mm-hmm. which goes on for six issues. Yeah. And and nothing not only doesn't you know, it add nothing new, it actually kind of does nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very, it's a very strange read. Uh, and another reason I should say that I actually even got onto this in the first place was: Have you seen Marv Wolfman talk about Teen Titans like in recent years? Mm-mm, mm-mm. He's very open about the fact that he basically went through a years-long period of creative block, mm. uh, and that when he came out of it, he only really managed to do like a year's worth of stories that he's proud of mm-hmm. before. For the final, like, four years of the book, mm-hmm. he was fighting with the editor and doing what he considers subpar work. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So he, he stayed on that book for 16 years. <sighs> he is basically writing at least half of that off. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating to see. Well, as you point out, I, one of the things that I think is is also super, super, super important is uh, – is, the importance of George Perez is huge to Teen Titans, huge. And honestly, I think it's actually really huge to Wolfman as well, because there was a lot of like, you know, the the classic story that always stuck with me was when they were talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths and, um, you know, Wolfman had given the script to Perez and it opens with like the monitor, like talking or whatever. And Perez is like, we killed him last issue. And and Wolfman's like, oh, oh, that's right, right, okay, so we can't do, maybe this is a flashback, you know, and it was just this whole thing of, like, Wolfman was not tracking at a certain point, and I, and the thing, I, I mean, as you can tell from Perez's, uh, every piece of art, practically, that Perez did after a certain point, that guy pays ridiculous amounts of attention to detail, and yeah. I kind of feel that the two of them in tandem you know, uh, Wolfman was actually able, you know, because, because of his sort of, you know, bleeding heart, uh, uh, tendencies, uh, you know, kind of kept Perez's work from being just sort of cold and sterile, uh, sterile. And, and Perez also just kept Wolfman from being just a ginormous flake, which I feel that Wolfman can do a lot. It may be part of the reason why, you know, say say what you will about Claremont, but that guy really did. He 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 had he worked with a number of amazingly talented artists, but he also was able to tailor what he was doing to them in a way that it almost seems that Wolfman, when he comes back, when he comes to DC in the eighties, that really doesn't seem to be part of his skill set as much mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. I after reading all these omnibi, I, I really think there's a case to be made that Titans worked because it was Wolfman and Perez. Exactly, yeah. Whereas X Men worked because it was Claremont, and he worked with some great artists, but Claremont was really the the creative force. Uh, you know, I, I, I across I, the six years. You, you, how do I put it? I mean, on the one hand, yes, absolutely. And one of the things that really stands out from hearing Byrne talk about his time on X-Men 
at, at, at for any length of time was the amount of frustration that he would take with Claremont either changing things after they'd already discussed it and having his intention cutting across the the art or going somewhere else entirely. I just think how do I put it? Um one of the things that is impressive about Claremont is is that I feel that he whether it's that he changed things up specifically for each artist that he had or, you know, I mean, it's just very much to me, it feels very much like my secret theory, not so secret theory is that Claremont is the sort of last and greatest of the second generation Marvel writers coming very much out of working Marvel method. And so that meant like, he's like, he's got the ideas for the plots, but then as the art, but as the artists put in the things that they want, Claremont, Claremont is, you know, he's, he's omnivorous. He really, he likes a lot of things. And if, if there's stuff where people get excited about what, what's happening on the page, I think Claremont himself gets excited and those things tailor. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is I just feel on the one hand, you're absolutely right. Of course, Claremont is. But you don't want to discount the, the contributions of the artists. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of don't because part of me is there's a lot of those dudes are absolutely amazing, and I mean, you know, part of it is it's it's almost like because because X Men is like Batman, where it's like the editors pull the best talent in there and the best talent want to work on there because the sales are crazy and the checks are good and it's, and it's the highest of the high profile books. But I just think that like, when you look back on the number of people who've done, who did X-Men underneath Claremont, it it's not just that it's Cockrum and Byrne, you know, it's Paul Smith and Jim Lee and, um, you know, John Romita Jr. and just a number of guys that end up doing, and they're all very different. And I think that's also something that, at least for myself, when I wandered away from Teen Titans, which was around the second or third issue of the Baxter book, which, again, I'll, I'll come back to in a second, unfortunately, for all of us, uh, is that every time I came back, I would pick it up, and it it always felt like they were trying to recapture it looking like, you know, George Perez, like they'd either have Romeo Tangal like inking the hell out of it so that it looked like him or, you know, or it was like guys who were really influenced by Perez doing Perez work. And huh. don't you think, or I mean, you would see no, the I, 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 but... I actually don't because immediately following Perez, you had uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Mm hmm. Then you had Eduardo Barreto doing a, a really long run in that book. Yeah. Okay. Now, the, now people and can I, come I and throw not... rocks at me, but I honestly think that the gap between Paul Smith and John Romita Jr. is much larger than the gap between George Perez and Jose Garcia Lopez. Luis, Luis, ah, I'm already screwed up his name. Fantastic. <laughs> Luis Garcia Lopez. Thank you. Yeah. You know? It's because it's got four of them, Jeff. It, it can throw you off. I know. I'm like, ah, where does the Luis go in? No, I already said that. No, you said Lopez. Uh, I, now you're at the name of, end of the name. That's really interesting because I, I can both see what you're talking about and also would disagree. Uh, in large part because I remember reading X-Men, admittedly in back issues because I started with Romita, mm -hmm. but reading back issues of the Smith run and especially 175 when it's smith and ramita mm -hmm. and they mesh remarkably well 
Like what? maybe because they were both mm. trying to work with in each within each other's styles. See, I think but, that's it. I, I at best there's that, but I remember that well, ending. I, I I honestly think that Perez and uh, Garcia Lopez are very different artists. But more more Perez and Barreto are mm-hmm. amazingly different artists. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I got to admit, I did not see a lot of the Barreto stuff on I'm there. Trying but... to think who came after Barreto. It might have just been like a succession of ridiculous villain artists until they got Perez back. And then they got Gromit and Tom Gromit's a, a weird artist to discuss mm-hmm. stylistically. Uh, and especially because he's being inked by Al V huh. in the in the issues that are in the, the omnibus. And to be polite, Al V is probably not the right inker. Actually, in general, that book, when they get to the later issues in the third omnibus, mm-hmm. has some interesting inking choices. Hmm. George Perez inked by Bob McLeod. Oh, wow. Interesting. Which is super strange. Because mm-hmm. Bob McLeod really just, like, dulls down all the edges on Perez's work. Yeah, 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 which is which is fascinating. I can almost see how, again, I just sort of feel like there's something that's... Um... It, it, but it's like, it's almost, because for the first issue, he's back, he's back on issue 50. Mm-hmm. And for the first issue, it's very Perez. Right, mm-hmm. and then almost immediately, it's like they're trying to unperez Perez. Mm-hmm. It's very, very strange. because well, um, because it's a very overwhelming anchor. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things I actually kind of liked about him, you know, in a way, which is sad. But uh, but I remember because I think we talked about this that some of the the earlier issues of uh, New Mutants and stuff. I was like, finally, I get to see this guy do his own thing, sort of, you know? And it was, was, it's not necessarily that exciting, but yeah, he had like, you know, he's got the, he's, he's really an overwhelming inker, but of course his stuff is so lovingly rendered in a way, you know, it's like. In many ways, I think New Mutants is kind of the best book for him. mm -hmm. It's weird because I think if anyone talks about the artistic legacy of New Mutants now, you almost have to go to Sienkiewicz. Oh, yeah. Because it's where Sienkiewicz went nuts. Yeah. I mean, you've got Sienkiewicz going nuts, and then you've got Rob Liefeld later. So, I mean, it, 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 Bob McLeod is totally going to get overshadowed by those guys. And frankly, McLeod is. What's that? Bob McLeod's work in those first issues is great. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Although it's very, um, it's very staid. You know what I mean? Like, I. McLeod is a very. To be polite, pedestrian artist. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he his stuff is rendered lovingly, but his storytelling is is pretty bland. And so, I can see New Mutants. I think would have, uh, if it had stayed under that influence, I think it always would have been kind of a, a third rate, also ran title instead of whatever the fuck that it ended up being there for that period, where it was like. <laughs> You know, you had people who didn't even like the characters picking up the book every month because it was because it was just insane. Because it looked amazing, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Bob McLeod did a run on Action Comics in the the like very late eighties, early nineties. Oh yeah. Um, with Roger Stern, and that's actually a really good fit for him. Mm, yeah. See, exactly. Because yeah. his he's a very uh, traditionalist mm-hmm. kind. Like I said, he, it's weirdly. He's the next generation by which I'm really talking about, like, 
maybe the 70s or 80s versus the 60s, uh, Kurt Schwarzenberger. Yeah, right. Oh, that's a good comparison. You know? mm-hmm. So it kind of works really well for Superman. Yeah, He actually exactly. draws the – and I might be misremembering. He draws the issue, I want to say, that Superman reveals his secret identity to Lois. Uh, I, hmm. I want to say that the the final page of whatever Action Comics issue that is mm-hmm. is Clark taking off his glasses and opening his shirt and Superman outfits underneath. Right, and and it's it's McCloud and whoever was inking him. Interesting. Uh, I would have assumed that it was McCloud inking him, but may, uh, you know, I would definitely trust you over me in that regard. Uh, but yeah, but that, that's a, uh, a very good fit for him in a way that I think you're right. I think if McLeod had stayed on, on New Mutants, mm-hmm. uh, that it would have been a very different series. I mm-hmm. don't think you would have had like Warlock, for example. Yeah, no, exactly. There, there's a whole realm of weirdness and really rich weirdness that, that, that comes out afterwards. And McLeod is sort of, and I think again, that's sort of my deal of, uh, you know, for for people who listen to us over on the Baxter building, I've been pretty down on Stanley and and more or less, uh, you know, been pretty open open in suggesting. <laughs> really? That You're there's this so well. Charlie. I know, haven't I? I? Okay, it's true. People, if you really want to hear a fascinating subtextual experiment, go and listen to Baxter Building and see if you can parse out what my feelings are on Stan. It's very nuanced. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel I feel that in that – I do feel that there is something – because I remember it's like I, – I cannot remember what – and I've mentioned this before. Ever since they end up in that damn Roman village, you know, and then come out the, the other end or whatever, I just I, – I don't – I feel like between – Bob McLeod and Chris Claremont, there's nothing that Claremont himself is being really excited by, you know, whereas like when you maneuver him into those, uh, the, the waters with Sienkiewicz, he's just like, oh yeah, okay, that's great. And of course, you know, Simonson comes in and has her own, um, goals, I think, you know. I, I actually, I, I know you're not a podcast listener, but, uh, Explain the X-Men has reached the point where Simonson takes over from Claremont. Oh, interesting. Uh, and New Mutants. Mm-hmm. And are, are making me reconsider it. That's, where I, that's when I dropped the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized that I had very little interest in the book A, after they killed Cypher, mm-hmm. <laughs> B, with Brett Blevins' art, mm-hmm. and C, and actually most of the characters. Mm-hmm. I, I found that the characters were not particularly exciting to me. But... Something that I found really interesting was apparently when Simonson took over, she was under orders to de-age the characters. People were complaining that it was too old a book, and she basically had to make them into kids again. It's interesting. It's it's fascinating because you can see her do it, and I just figured in part based on some of her work with like uh, Power Pack and stuff, it was like – I don't want to say a limit, like a limitation of her writing style. Well, I, I don't want to say it now, but I think at the time I was like, oh, she can. So it's interesting the idea that she was under an editorial mandate to to do that, because at the time I was like, eh. But also, let's face it: when you say the death of Cipher, that is that's a, that is a huge stumbling block, I think, for New Mutants. You know, I mean, because uh, a stumbling block. Why? Well, um, hmm. as I recall, and just to make sure that I, I'm, because uh, my code names are rusty, you mean Doug Ramsey, right? 
I do mean Doug Ramsey. Yeah, so so you've got Doug Ramsey. Here we are. We live here in 2016. A guy who knows all languages and can talk to computers is is essentially the um, you know the Ubermensch of today. But it's also but he's also so um, he's so. F- uh, fraught with like this is exactly the right character, and I remember feeling that way with Doug Ramsey. I mean, one of the things that was great about him was because he, you know, he had this power that was, if you think about it, really cool. And of course, he had that you know huge crush on on Rain or whatever. And it and for you know the little teen nerd in me, it was like ah, this guy, I really feel for him. But I was also kind of really aware that it was. It almost felt like a limitation of the superhero genre that they could not figure out what to do with him apart from having him kind of comp- moan and whine about how he couldn't do anything, you know, mm-hmm. until they the, later they bring in Warlock or whatever to try and to rectify that. But it's very much this idea. I was like, even then, maybe I was just old enough where it was like, you know, computers were a big deal. Like there was something that was just... So um, uh, uh, mercenary about the creation of him, you know what I mean? I mean, he's basically it, it's 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 he was so perfectly of the time, and they just couldn't figure out what to do with him. And I remember feeling like there was just this his dying was was more a sign that there was just this tremendous uh, limitation on imagination or something. Uh, in in uh, in the book, and just sort of maybe in Marvel Comics in a way, because I don't know. It's not again. I you know I was still following. I, I think you know this was all right around the time where you know Alan Moore managed to. If he hadn't been there, maybe I would have just sort of you know um, exited comics stage right or whatever. But but as but as it was. Um, I just remember feeling like, no, that character, and I still have that thing where it's like, that character is the most powerful character in the X-Men universe, and or the figure that, like, if you, if you, like, tried to have, talk to people and give them a list of powers today, and, like, do you want to fly, do you want to have claws burst out of your, you know, forearms, or do you want to be able to know every language ever, and you can make computers do whatever you want by talking to them? The number of people that would choose option D, and I mean, again, as as someone who had to sit there and slowly type in those stupid programs on the VIC-20 that never worked right, and I guess people on your end, you can you know, Brits, please put in this appropriate ZX Spectrum uh, joke. <laughs> no, there. I, th- I think you're talking about the Acorn or the BBC. Oh, really? Are those pre-Spectrum? Uh, I want to say they were contemporaneous, but they were definitely the ZX Spectrum was the one where you you put in the cassette and you played games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember using that to to program, but definitely if you were in school or if you were in school in Scotland, mm-hmm. you had the the Acorn or the the um, BBC. Ah, I see. Well, I, I think the ZX Spectrum is the same thing because, you know, you could put in the tape, but there was also the computer magazines where they would have the programs in the back. And they're like, hey, all you have to do is type these like 680 lines of code and you can have your own, you know, Star Trek game where you're hunting Klingons. And uh, that works. We're getting a fascinating flashback into your 1980s life. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
the fact that I am not running any sort of technical company probably uh, shows you that, yeah, it is a flashback. And it's a flashback that's meaningful because it's me quitting at about line 60 where I'm like, oh, fucking, who can tell? Go to 20. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, (laughs) is that a lesser than or a greater than? Where's that fucking thing on the keyboard? Jesus. Uh, uh, I remember when I was like 10, so 84. Whatever, yeah. What year did War Games come out? Oh, God. I do want to say it was 84, but maybe it was yeah. 83. It, whatever year that was. Uh-huh. Uh, my parents, because I was super into that film. Uh, my parents got me The Hacker's Handbook. And the thing is, The Hacker's Handbook was actually written for people who really wanted to become a hacker. Right. And was, therefore, impenetrable for me. Yeah. I remember reading it being like, what the fuck is this? Jesus Christ. Never technical person. <laughs> well, there we have it, people. Two very important roads not taken for uh, your podcast hosts, um, which explains why we're doing podcasts as opposed to. <laughs> as opposed to creating Apple computers. Exactly. You know, managing our space program. So. Uh, uh, so to, to roll it back, so that was my thing is, is I really remember feeling like the death of Cypher was kind of this weird and, and you know, not in a it, it was it was probably just a good jumping off point for me. But I also remember at the time feeling like that that was this character they introduced that was the first one where they didn't really figure out how to like they they loaded him with hooks and then they still managed to not do anything with the character. I would argue it's not the first even in New Mutants. I mm-hmm. think Magma is is just as poorly treated. Oh yeah, Magma is the, that one. But it, I mean, how do I put it? Magma sort of makes sense because Magma seems almost like weirdo collateral. You know, it's like ah, uh, it, you know, it's like I went to a crazy Roman city and all I got was this mutant, you know, <laughs> v- version of a T-shirt. You know, because it's because yeah. it is. It's it's very much that idea of like you can see where Claremont's being like. Oh, I, I did really well with sort of fish out of water, women with streaks of nobility that are able to like, you know, also explode in fiery things that everyone thinks is awesome. But then there's just nothing that you can, he wasn't, he wasn't able to do anything with it. I think in part because again, he's like, but I already did that. Like he's already doing it, like trying to reinvent that wheel. So when they came up with something new, with Doug, it was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then he was like, uh. and again, I feel there's a little bit of, I think Claremont is fantastic, but sort of the same way. I mean, it's very hard to, you know, I do take John Byrne at his word that he was like, man, nobody gave a shit about Wolverine, but me. Wolverine was just supposed to be like the heel. Uh, and I loved him because, you know, like me, he was Canadian and insane. So, you know, I was going to really, you know, and then of course now, I mean, that ends up with like Claremont being like, oh yeah, Wolverine's great. I'm doing a miniseries with Frank Miller and I've got all this stuff. I'm talking about how awesome he is and he's a samurai. And of course you can hear Bird be like, no, he's not a motherfucking samurai for fuck's sake, (laughs) you know? And it's, and Claremont is, it's like any toy that you play with, if you play with it with sufficient intensity, Chris Claremont is the, is the kid who's like, oh, I want this toy, you know, and he picks it up and he's playing with it. And then he's well, putting all of his own it, weird things onto is it. Is he though? Because I feel that's only, I think he just felt that about the X-Men. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like. Because he never really 
went. I mean, he didn't even really go out there to rescue X Factor, which has always been surprising to me. I, I don't, but I don't. Well, but but there was a lot of stuff with him. I don't think he. I don't think he was down with X Factor. You know, he, he was. He was apparently not down with X Factor yeah. at all. Right. So I mean, uh, that's he, that he, thing. Do you remember? Uh, maybe I can't even remember where I heard the story. Uh, but basically, he got told that Jean Grey was coming back, and he tried to quit. And and Nashenti basically had to con him to stop him quitting. Had to had to con him. Yeah, she had to basically convince him that the Marvel offices were not open and there was no way he could reach Jim Shooter. Wow. Okay, I didn't hear that. It wouldn't su- surprise me. It sounds like such a Sean Howe Because Because she took – yeah, it might be in Sean Howe or it might be in the the, um, the Secart Claremont's X-Men documentary. Mm. Uh, but there's – apparently, like, Nashanti took him out to dinner because she knew that he, A, had to be told in a very careful way, but B – that she had to maneuver it in such a way that he could not then immediately quit. Right. right. Because that was that was his first impulse. His first yeah. impulse was just, you're doing this, I'm quitting. Right. I do remember from Sean Howe's book, uh, which, which I'm like, we've got a plug by actual name here. Marvel yeah. Comics, The Untold Story. Thank you. Um, that uh, when they announced that they were going to do another X-Men book, which was New Mutants at the time, he basically was like, you're... We'll do it if I write it. Like he wanted to keep the control over his um, his fiefdom. Yeah, and, and and in a way that I think wasn't just a wasn't just a matter of pride. Although I'm sure there was some of it. I think he was very much he he was he did not want the them to. He he was aware that they would happily kill the goose to get the get more golden eggs and and which they do with x factor you mm-hmm. know x factor is just you read the first like 10 issues or whatever it is before louis simonson comes on board mm-hmm. and that is a title that is being made by people who loved the roy thomas werner roth run and i say that as someone who loves the roy thomas werner roth run mm-hmm. but love that run and who don't want those characters to be anything but that yeah 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 well, I, yeah, no, I mean, it just... And it I was, have no idea what else to do with the book aside from that. Well, see, that's it. That's the that's the other thing, is, is they just couldn't wrap their brain around it. it was There was a little bit of a... Uh, and that was always my problem with X-Factor, is like, why are these characters here? And once you get uh, the Simonsons in there, and they're changing the characters up, it gets interesting. But of course, still for me, there was a little undercurrent of, why are these characters here? And of course, I, I feel... I mean, it's too late now, but the, I don't know, Graham, in, in, in your alternate little timeline, would Jean Grey have stayed dead? Would yes. She, yeah, me too. You know? Because it just, it, it, you don't get enough back to sacrifice what you lose in the Dark Phoenix story. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really don't. And okay, to get it back to the Titans for a second, mm-hmm. what's really telling for me is Judas Contract really has the most half-assed killing of Terra ever. Mm-hmm. To the point where part of me was like, were they planning to bring her back? Hmm. I bet they were, but I don't. I honestly do not remember. Uh, they, she dies. She goes insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, she buries herself under earth, right. and body is only found after searching afterwards, mm-hmm. which is more than enough time in comics to substitute someone else's body. Right, 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 right. You know, and it's it's super super strange the way that it's done. Yeah, I I think. I think they were because I think I think Wolfman is uh, um, 
Yeah. I, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, I was going to say whatever the euphemistic equivalent of hack was, but I, I really was going to say I, I was really meaning it in the sense of, you know, because part of me is like if you're crafting – I myself am very, I think, reluctant with superhero deaths, uh, but also mainly because I, I feel that they, sh- that they should stick in levels like that. And Terra dying was – yeah, it was kind but of. But like, essentially did stick. They never really brought her back. Uh, yeah, they brought I, in lots of different terrors. They brought in alternate world terrors. They brought right. in like a totally different character called Terra. But I don't think they ever brought that Terra back. Yeah, and you know, if they hadn't rebooted the timeline like twice since then, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, I I totally think someone, anyone who's given the Titans franchise, should bring Terra back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I also think that I I'm stunned that at this point DC has not actually relaunched the, the Teen Titans book as New Teen Titans. Oh, that's very clever. Well, did they? Is that not what they did when Jeff Johns was on it? Because I have to say that fall, no, the... it's just called Teen Titans. The book oh. has always just been called Teen Titans. Since wow, then. wow, interesting. Even when they relaunched it like last year or the year before, holy shit! Like like a month between, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they killed Teen Titans and relaunched it as Teen Titans. And at the same time, killed Suicide Squad and relaunched that as new Suicide as Squad. As new Suicide Squad. It's super strange that they didn't relaunch it as new Teen Titans, especially because you look at the new Teen Titans work, and then you look at the DC line now, and you're like, wow, clearly Didio grew up with new Teen Titans. Yeah, right. Like, no. Starfire and Cyborg have their own fucking own series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but they do now. They Post Tumblr DC had they they have series now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know. It's really strange. So one of the things I've also been reading is is the new Fifty Two Teen Titans, mm-hmm. um, which is very much in it's very much in the mold of the Jeff Johns Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. Which one of the strange things about Teen Titans as a franchise is that. There are three distinct generations of it. Mm-hmm. There's the original, there's the new Teen Titans, and then there's the Jeff John Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. And the lineups are essentially different, mm-hmm. uh, it, at least in their focus. Mm-hmm. Because Wolfman and Perez very quickly were like, let's bring back Speedy, let's bring back Aqualad. But they were all somewhat peripheral to the main action. Mm-hmm. And so when Jeff Johns brings back the book, he has Cyborg and uh, Raven in the book. But they are, again, peripheral because the book's really about Kid Flash, Robin, Wonder Girl, and Superboy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you get Lobdell relaunching the title, and the lineup is Red Robin, Superboy, Wonder Girl, and Kid Flash mm-hmm. with some other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really strange is he then goes, I'm going to bring back Trigon. I'm going to bring back Raven mm-hmm. with these characters here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, he's you feel like he's trying to have his cake and eat it. And... The result is a really weird book in that it's fine. Right. <laughs> like, it's nowhere near as bad as it could be, and honestly, as bad as I expected. Well, you know... But it's also not a good book. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, there's... Well, okay. Um, I'm never going to get back to my one of my earlier questions for you about the other stuff, which is which is great. I'll get to... I'll somehow figure out a way to get there in an organic <laughs> way. Uh, do you, well, I feel that, um, I always felt that like with Wolfman and Perez, they created the new characters very much with the idea of like, 
these like kind of like these are the char- these are the new exciting characters that are going to you know draw in the new readers because no one wants to read books about Robin yeah, and but, Wonder yeah, Girl exactly, and Kid Flash, exactly. and the, and then they actually managed to pull off the hat trick of making us care. I mean, it's care about those old characters again. I mean, it is it's impossible to imagine uh, Wolfman and Perez's new Teen Titans without without. Robin in there, I think first and foremost, of course, you know. Yeah, well, uh, when you read the the omnibus, and the omnibus is basically like, here's the first fifty issues of of Perez and Wolfman, mm-hmm. you realize about midway through that it's really a story about Robin. It's really yeah. a story about Grayson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the point where in uh, one of the the main uh, moments of Judas contract is he becomes Nightwing. Absolutely, yeah. You know, he becomes his own person, even though he spent like 20 issues going, I'm my own person, damn it. <laughs> Are you Robin? Yeah, I'm my own person. Ah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it very much is. And then you have like, uh, who is Donna Troy in there as well. Right. And so, you know, it really is, you know, we we wowed you, we lured you in with these new guys, but really it's a book about the old guys as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. Yeah, for it's about it's about Robin. I think they were like, and we can do it about Wonder Girl. I, I also know they were trying to do it about Kid Flash, and they I I never felt like they made it work really. But that's I, I, fine. well, yeah, reading it now, it does not honestly feel like they cared about Kid Flash. <laughs> well, what's amazing is is that for. As much as they didn't, they spent a lot of time pushing him into the center. You know what I mean? And part yeah, of that may be a little them, bit of the template. Kind of fascinating. Yeah. Well, it, it, again, it may be kind of that Marvel template of like, who's who's our hot-headed feet of clay character? You know? Yeah. And and because you need one of those, you know, if you're running on the Marvel template, and they they decided Kid Flash was the was the way to go with that. So, I you know, I, I, but uh, I, I did want to say, like, so part of me is like, yeah, I can sort of see where Lobdell might be like, okay, I'm going to, I am going to, like, start with the new 52 version of the classic team and then start bringing in the new incarnations of the characters. To me, that sounds sort of clever. Um, there's so many things that hobbled it. Like, I remember reading that first issue of uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws or whatever, mm-hmm. and just being really intrigued by how, how, basically how much the New 52 was broken before it began. Be- oh, it's, it's, it's trying to map the history of those characters in the New 52. Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah, because the writers don't know. They're very much like, these are new characters that haven't been seen in the universe before, except everything that has happened with them has already has still happened. And yeah. you're like, how does that even make yes. any sort of... And there's explicit call-outs in like... Uh... In, which is interesting, because Lobdell was writing Red Hood and Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. And there's specific call-outs in Red Hood that Starfire has worked with Dick Grayson before in a team. Exactly. Exactly. And then there's specific references in Teen Titans that there's never been a Teen Titans before. Yeah, written by the same guy. Well, because I think I think I think Lobdell would. I think Lobdell ha- had he had he had plans. I don't think he ever got to execute you know half of them. But I think he was. He was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to keep referencing this. People are going to think that it's Teen Titans, and then I'm going to blow their mind when I launch you know New Fifty Two Sex Quest. 
you know, or whatever it was that he was working for. <laughs> well, what's Ooh, funny sex circus, <laughs> sex circus. That's what it would have been. Yeah. What, so. What's funny is Titans hunt, which is the, the third wave of Titans that I've been reading mm-hmm. is the, the current miniseries that is retconning in the original teen Titans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Who's, who's, who's uh, doing it? Uh, Dan Abnett. Mm-hmm. Oh, Abnett, uh, of course, right. With a fairly revolving team, just in three issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Paolo Sequeira and oh, someone else, who was the other person on issue one, Geraldo Borges, and they draw issue one and issue three, and Steven Segovia draws issue two, and I don't know if the plan is that they're going to alternate like that or wow. not. Huh. It's super weird. Um, but it is retconning in a team of Dick Grayson, Aqualad, Donna Troy, Speedy, Lilith, uh, Malcolm, who was shit, what was his name? The Herald? Yeah, uh, something like and, that. And Nark, the prehistoric man. <laughs> what? Really, wow. really. It's retconning that team in. Um, and it's doing it surprisingly well because it is starting from none of these guys remember each other. None of these guys have ever met as far as they know, mm-hmm. but they clearly have. Mm. Hmm. Uh, and so they're playing it as a mystery. And mm-hmm. it helps that it is, not that it's a comedy, mm-hmm. but that it's perfectly willing to accept that things about the character setup and the old Titan setup are goofy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get, Donna Troy and Dick Grayson meet for the first time and she says, what's your name? And he says, Dick. And she's basically like, well, that's a shame. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a weird book, but I kind of like the way they're trying to retcon in history. They're hobbled by the fact that in whatever the current DC timeline is, like all happens in five years. Mm-hmm. So like, yes! So this this time's been around for a while, but there's another one before that. Oh, God. Uh, like right. that really at some point in the last five years <laughs> uh, but it's reading that i and i'm enjoying it it made me realize dick grayson's fucking everywhere right now he really is there he's in robin war he's in grayson and he's in batman robin eternal yeah yeah when did dick grayson become such a big part of the, the DC? uh and the answer is post tumblr i don't know i mean that's i mean that's maybe, cool. maybe it is yeah. maybe it is I, 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 I'm inclined to believe that. I think that there's also kind of a, um, well, and I, I don't know. I mean, cause of course, Batman and Robin Eternal is kind of a playing with a, a different con- idea of it, but the idea that the conception that, that Dick Grayson is the one guy in the new 52 universe who knows who he is and is comfortable with he is, who he is. That I think is, a lot, a, a lot of writers are like, oh, okay, I know what, kind of like, I know what to do with that. You know, I mean, part of it is the drama of like, oh, I can shake up like the, is he really who he thinks he is kind of card? Or is it also, uh, which I think is kind of a nice way to do the, a new 50, do something with the new 52 that is classic DC is a little bit of the, oh, but this guy can't be as inherently good as he says he is. And yet he is, you know, and, and yet it works in a way that, you know, that I feel they had a lot of trouble with, with Superman kind of out of the gate for, 
you know, whatever reasons. So, but he's there and I do, I do like him. It's, but yeah, if you, so one of the things that's also nice about Titans Hunt is like, it's recognizably, Dan Abnett has recognizably read Grayson Mm -hmm. and he's writing that Dick Grayson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he has that to play with. And then because the other characters haven't really existed in the new 52, Mm -hmm. he gets to, Oh, I guess Speedy has because he's in Red Hood and, the, and whatever it's called. Red, Red Hood and Arsenal, Arsenal now. now, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets to write the other characters basically as versions of the ones that existed before. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, but enough that they are, he can insert them where they need to be. So, for example, Garth is, Aqualad is, much angrier and more pissed off and and uh kind of racist in a wonderful way uh against against people who breathe air which i kind of love um and donna troy just gets to be uh kind of powerful yet very vehement because she knows something has gone on without her agency Mm -hmm. so you get this very sort of angry like, why do I remember you? I shouldn't remember you. I'm going to kill you for that. <laughs> right, right. Type thing. You get Malcolm being like just a, not even a superhero, just a composer who writes music. Hmm. Uh, playing off, you know, the, the various musician parts of his past. And it's, it, it works. You know, hmm. there's, there's stuff in there that is fun. The fact that he's basing it around fucking Mr. Twister coming back. Which is really the plot of the series. What? Wow. Whoa. Right? I'm into this. Okay. Wow. Um, it, it's, it's kind of wacky. You know, the fact that you have Lilith as the one person who knows that everyone else has met before mm-hmm. because she's a, a therapist. Because, mm-hmm. you know, she's psychic. I don't know if you remember Lilith from the original series, but she's psychic. She, she's the, the telepath. Oh, yeah. I barely um, remember her. And she is, she is um, Roy's therapist you know and you have all these sort of cute nods which don't overwhelm the story it's not like it's like ah remember Ah, ah, ah." (laughs) which is the worst it's the worst when you have someone doing uh everyone can start here and immediately derails itself by being like you know right for this (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know it's like Weirdly enough, the uh, the all new, all different Iron Man first issue, huh. which really doesn't work as an introduction because it spends so much time basically being like, it's not the Marvel Universe you know. Right. You right. know? It's yeah. Doctor Doom, but he can see his face. Right. You know? And it's like, if I didn't know I couldn't see his face, that would mean nothing. And you've just spent a page on it. Yeah. Whereas I, I actually really sort of like what Al Ewing's doing with the Ultimates, although it... it... <laughs> A lot of it's ultimates, which let yes. no offense to anyone because it's a fine book, but it should be a Fantastic Four book. Oh yeah, pretty much, right? pretty much. Yeah, I mean, they I should call it that. that. It it should be like just everything he's doing there is like, well, this should be what a Fantastic Four comic should be. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about you know the idea of how great it would be to have him tackle the FF and yeah. uh, in a previous podcast last year at some point and this it really does sort of prove the point because he is so comfortable with taking big ideas um and figuring out sort of clever ways to uh slot them into the 
continuity. Like the thing that I think is really interesting is is that is that Ewing is playing with the idea of continuity in the Ultimates book as a uh, weird, like all the stuff that he's doing with ISO eight and the idea that this is the eighth incarnation of a universe. And so therefore things are different a little bit, but you also have like, it starts building up this idea of like, Oh no, the character from universe two is coming back and nobody can stop him kind of thing. You know, yeah. it's a real fun way to play with, with epochs and also the idea of like, uh, um, that sort of quantum state of continuity of like, oh, this counts. No, it doesn't count. Oh, you know it. No, you don't know it. You know, it it, it, it's, it works it's, on a level. You know? Yeah, and I really like it as well because for all of Marvel's, we're not doing a reboot. Mm -hmm. I kind of love like this is a comic that explicitly is like the universe has been rebooted. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Explicitly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is... I think it's the way to do it, honestly. I think when you come out of something like Secret Wars and you're actually trying to get new readers, mm -hmm. I think it makes sense to be like, they're the characters you know, but they're not. And this right. is the construct why. Yeah. Um, did you see uh, Hibbs' uh, article, latest tilting over at uh, Comic Book Resources? Uh, tell me what it is, because I want to say yes, but part of me is, for some reason, very nervous about saying yes. Well, and I, and I say recent, uh, it must be like two weeks old or something like that. But yeah. the, the, he, he, it was the one where, well, he had the one where it's like, uh, you know, these universe, these reboots aren't working and we're in big trouble. But and I don't remember if it's that one, if it's in that column or there's a column after that. But he, he essentially talks about how, Marvel gained new readers, like serious new comic readers, with their um, uh, with their approach to you know rebooting the books. And then when they rebooted them again, they lost those new readers because the new readers couldn't understand why you would stop it and restart it with number one again. You know, which is something I've been hearing a lot. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I I and I. It makes an awful lot of sense. If you say you are getting in people who do not regularly read comics mm -hmm. and you're reading Squirrel Girl. Yes. Or, or Ms. Marvel even more so. Yeah. Ms. Marvel, the fact that it actually, first of all, it ends with it's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, come back in a month. Right. Like, I see people just being like, but why? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, totally. Didn't you, end, didn't, didn't you just end the world? Like, yeah. I, 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 and because... You were unable to be like, this shit happens all the time. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, right. It's, it is very you, – you do give – and this is a common thing that people say. You give people perfect jumping off points. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's it. People people who get into comics, it's that I, you know, everyone's like, oh, we've got the new readers in. We treat them exactly the same way we treat the lifers. And it's like, no. And, and also just that weird idea of like we don't – those things that we as long-term readers take for granted, like new readers don't necessarily know that, that idea of like, oh, the universe is rebooted, uh, you know, or it's like the book is canceled. Uh, oh, well, I really liked Iron Man shit, you know, and then it's like, no, no, it's coming back next month. Well, but why? And then the difficulty of trying to explain all that is am is amazing to me. And it's it's very sad because if you think, you know, at least hearing those stories about people jumping off stuff like, you know, uh, Ms. Marvel or the Thor's book or, or books where they've gained a lot of 
you know, where they gained those new readers and then the new readers are just like, I don't, I don't, you know, you really need to hold their hand through it, which is such a shame because there, because there is some great work. Oh my God, Graham, I know you're not going to be reading Squirrel Girl in real time and you're going to be, you know, on, on Marvel Unlimited time. But no, I'm going to be on crap. trade time. Oh, on trade time? Yeah, I guess yeah, that would be I, slightly I actually, faster. I actually right? switched to trades because it was faster because I did want my fix. I actually might get it in real time. You, uh, you, I think you should. It's... I, I started from behind. And mm-hmm. I, I was just like, catching up. But now I'm like, <laughs> I can see myself getting this monthly. Yeah. Although it's... I have to admit, the crossover with Howard the Duck makes me go, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. It's like, mm-hmm. I feel when you have these titles, mm-hmm. doing the old tricks, like, it's a crossover. Yeah. Is just, no. No, I do not want this. Right. Right. Like, I, I, I've not picked up the new Ms. Marvel in large part because now she is so fucking tied to the rest of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, that's really a shame, I have to no, say. No, it's yeah. like, wait, mm-hmm. so now she's going to be guest starring in Miles Morales and Nova and she's a regular in all new uh, Avengers? Mm-hmm. I, that actually puts me off reading her title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the, we're crossing over Squirrel Girl and Howard the Duck could be fun. Yeah. But as someone who finds Chip Zdarsky funnier in small doses, <laughs> I, I think I think he's very funny on Twitter. You know what's funny? I, it, I think his stuff in Sex Criminals is funny. Right. I was exhausted by Howard the Duck. You know, here's something that's really odd because uh, I read the first issue of Howard and um, I was uh, I was – I was pretty underwhelmed. I sort of felt kind of bad for buying it somewhat. But really, it was just more like, eh, that was eh. But then I think I read the second issue on Marvel Unlimited, which means that there was like a seven-month gap between them. I was like, oh, this is okay. Again, it might be that Marvel Unlimited factor of like, oh, for free, it's pretty damn good. Exactly, you yeah. Know? Didn't pay $4 for this? Sure. Yeah. But but frankly, I've actually liked all three issues of his Jughead. I think his Jughead books I, have I, all been... I, yeah, it's true. I actually do like his Jughead more than like his Howard. I, yeah. I, I For some reason, Howard just does not land for me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of crossing it over with Squirrel Girl just makes me go, I guess I'm not going to read that issue of Squirrel Girl. Yeah, probably. As, so I'm going to pick up that and Howard. Right. Well, um, or just read that issue because I, I have a lot of faith in Ryan North and Erica Henderson. They're doing some really great stuff with the book. I really enjoyed this most recent issue. And I think there's a way in which if if there's ever a team that I could see uh, making fun of the idea that you would have to pick up another comic book to understand a story, it would really be them. You know, it's true. They did have their whole our second number one issue this year. <laughs> yes, yeah, just this year or something. It's so good. Yeah, good, 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 good times, people. Yeah. Um, I don't know, uh, but seeing, I think Marvel's in a kind of a, a spot mm-hmm. because if you do have your titles, which are the outliers, that are the ones bringing in the new readers, mm-hmm. how do you then translate that into picking up Avengers? Without going the Ms. Marvel route, which turns me off. Well, I, I think, and I and I could be wrong. I'm not sure that that is necessarily up. That is that is a problem for God bless five years from now. You know what I mean? Like for me, the idea that you get new readers in reading Marvel comics. 
however you, or, you know, or DC for that matter, however you manage to do it, then do it. Like that, my idea, like the idea that like, let's say to flip it around, let's say that Prez had turned out to be like an enormous seller over out of the DCU. And all of a sudden you were like, well, I've got to figure out a way to put Prez in all those books. Like I, part of me is like, you know what, if you can come up with a way that you've got a regular set of second tier books that sell, you know, 40,000, 35 to 40,000 in, in quote unquote new readers, I think that's great. Like just keep them there. You've got the people, you've got the, the people who are shackled to Avengers or Spider-Man no matter what. And if you can figure out a way in there, then that's, that's one thing. But I mean, you know, it, the the idea used to be when you brought Spider-Man into a new title, it it wasn't to get the, you know, Omega the Unknown readers hooked on Spider-Man, you know? It was very much like you got the people who were, uh, you know, who bought everything that Spider-Man ever appeared in, you know, and R.I.P., uh, you know, poor people, uh, you know, they, it's just not, it's just not the same solution. I, I, I think what's amazing to me is, is that Mar the, the bind that Marvel is in is in the, if they have to keep hitting their sales targets or whatever it is, and they, they're used to using these old, uh, artificial models of inflation and they can't do that anymore because a, it doesn't work and B they're driving away any new readers that they can attract. Like to me, it's very much this idea of what the hell is going to happen when they don't hit those targets. Like how are they going to be able to make that work? Cause I think there's well, do you, how soon, how close do you think they are to that? Well, because one of the things I think is really interesting about all new, all different Marvel is mm -hmm. they're, the, their books are not selling significantly more. Exactly. And in fact, many of them are sale, selling the same level or less. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. But they are now producing so many more books. Right. right. So that might be the way they do it, just through fucking volume. Sure. Which I, I suspect like, is the happens, way that... You know, a year from now, is it possible that we're going to see a hundred ongoing Marvel titles at a time? Uh, you know, I, I, that's right. A big jump because we're at 70 or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause I, I think that Marvel did, I mean, it really depends on how those numbers are looked at, you know, because part of me is like, if you split the Star Wars out on a separate part of the balance sheet, you know, <laughs> yeah, your Marvel universe is, is in trouble. Is in serious trouble. If you don't, if you just look at it as an aggregate, then I think Marvel has some time to be able to figure out how to make things work. And like you said, it I, may be I'm, over. I'm not sure it has a lot of time because I think Marvel no. is in danger of killing Star Wars. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that they are, yeah, that they have, if they're lucky, they've got a reprieve for about a year. And frankly, I could be wrong, but I, I think I DC probably had, might have a reprieve for about that long tops. Uh, that's tops. You think it's less than that? Yeah. Um, because I, well, first of all, I think sales on the Star Wars books are, are beginning to fall. Yeah. Are starting to dim. To, mm -hmm. I think they're beginning to put out more or at least that's not true. I think they're beginning to put out ones that the market has realized or don't have the same prestige. Mm -hmm. I think by the time you've had your, um, we're doing a C3PO one shot 
and it's James Robinson and, and Tony Hires telling you how C-3PO got his red arm. <laughs> like, I honestly think that's the right. point where people are like, really? Yeah. Shit, that's cashing in. Um, and I also think that it's going to be a problem now that there's not a Force Awakens comic. I think that there's, I think that the Star Wars market because mm-hmm. right now the Star Wars comics basically are, hey, you guys, do you remember the first film? It was yeah. great. No, absolutely. I, I think right. there's, I think the problem with that is the existence of the Force Awakens mm-hmm. makes a chunk of those fans now be like, oh, but we've moved on, and we want to see stories with the moved on people. Yes. No, I get it. Uh, well, well, and I think there are. I mean, there's people that are going to. They're coming out of the Force Awakens who are like first time Star Wars people, and I think would be like, yeah, give me the comic. Like, honestly, the fact that there's not a. I don't even know Ray's last name if she has one, but there is. There is no last name. That's kind of the point, right? That's what her parents are. Yeah. So I. Well, I know, but some assume names or whatever. You know, sometimes they throw out something in there. Anyway, the fact the fact that they don't have a comic out with Ray as the lead. You know, and I, of course, the, hey, everybody, I finally saw The Force Awakens. Knowing how the first movie ends now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem. You can't do it. Yeah, you, like, that, you, that last frame. You can't, do, you can't do the old method of, and here's the film, the stories that happen between the films. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that last image is such a, and possibly deliberate cock blocker. Um, that's, yeah, for any ancillary material. It really well, is. That's not true. You could totally do uh, what Poe is doing between yes. them. I think, and I think that's probably where they're going to try and go. Is like, here's what Poe's up to. Here's what Finn's up to. Well, no, we can't. They also leave Finn in a state of suspended animation. Do they? Where? What? Uh, okay. Spoilers, everyone. Spoilers, everyone. <laughs> where the hell is Finn at the end of all that? I thought he was like, um, he's he's he... healing. Remember. Oh, he, yeah, but he's healing. That's fine. That's... Yes. When you leave him there, it's mm-hmm. very possible the next film is going to pick up with him there. And then you end up with uh, the same problem that DC's Star Trek comics had. Right, exactly. Where they like that whole thing between Star Trek 3 and 4 or whatever. Four, yeah, which yeah. is just well, – I, I'm going to explain that for listeners be, just because it makes me laugh so much. <laughs> uh, DC published a Star Trek comic that began between 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it basically sets uh, a, a, a continuity that works rel- tracks relatively well with the films, mm-hmm. which is Spock is dead, but the Enterprise crew is continuing to be the Enterprise crew, and Savick has stepped in in Spock's place. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That works fine. Because of where 3 picks up, sure, you're not messing anything up. Between 3 and 4, however, they really run into problems, because 3 ends with the destruction of the Enterprise, the crew <laughs> is on Vulcan, Spock is an amnesiac, right? And so, whoever is writing it, I want to say it's Lion Wayne, but I might be making that up, um, basically solves all of that. He has them go back to Starfleet, they get a new starship, Spock is back to normal, he has his own starship, he's off on a mission, and then at some point they get the script for four, which starts pretty much immediately after three. Right. And have to create a six part storyline, which turns Scott Spock back into an amnesiac, has Kirk and crew destroy another spaceship, oh and get stranded on Vulcan again. Oh my god. Oh it's, my which god. is amazing. Amazing mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And I think that, that, 
you're really left between uh, Force Awakens and whatever episode eight is called mm-hmm. um, with that problem, mm-hmm. unless you do the adventures of Finn and uh, the adventures of Poe and Old Leia. Mm-hmm. No one to play with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're really blocked on a lot of those figures, which is which is a shame. Um, but but the thing is, you could do what the novels have done, which is the stories of them before then, right? Which I like, which I think would be a good idea with Ray. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there you have a guy who writes comics who's already a part of the the Star Wars machine, who has worked in this material already. The fact that Marvel did not almost immediately announce, uh, here's our like you know, pre awakening miniseries. Mm-hmm. Starring at least Poe. Again, Poe is the most uh, available character yeah. in the new mythology. Right. Because he's part of the, the conflict mm-hmm. even before. Mm-hmm. He is introduced as like this hotshot pilot who's done all these dangerous missions. Right. Um, you have all this stuff to play with. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Marvel didn't go, did you like that film? Here's right. the prequel. Right immediately is amazing to me. And in fact, the fact that their, their, their new Star Wars comic around that time was, it's Obi-Wan and Anakin between its episodes one and two. <laughs> well, wait, wait. It's like, I'm, I'm totally confused. Wasn't, I thought Rekka did a, wasn't there the whole, the road to the Force Awakens, look out, here comes the Force Awakens. Wasn't that like some rush journey, dashed out miniseries? Sorry, Journey to Star Wars, the Force Awakens, uh, M- Shattered Empire. Yeah, uh, right. Which takes place immediately after Return of the Jedi. Mm. Oh, I see. And indeed deals with Poe's parents. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's... It's, it's not a Poe comic. Right. Uh, well, and, you know, there's, there's, there is literally like three decades worth of story that I'm really surprised that Marvel has not... Or maybe they have and they've been rebuffed by Lucasfilm. Who knows? But that Marvel is not releasing or soliciting material for yet. Because well, the problem is also, say they do it for the summer. Mm-hmm. I, it's going to be successful, obviously, but I can't feel that, I can't help but feel that they would have lost some of the momentum. Well, you know, Marvel is, I don't, I don't know if the Marvel comics that we've looked at for, you know, the last however many years really believes in momentum. It, it is a, it is, <laughs> it's a comic book, it's a comic book company that really believes in entropy and how do you, how do you fight it? So it could very well be that they've got a, a little plan up their sleeve for what happens when those Star Wars numbers stop performing at a level to, oh, yeah. and then and, try and pull and people like, back hey. Mm-hmm. God, that's exhausting. If true, that's very sad. Yeah, I mean, and we'll we'll see how we'll see how it pans out. But but yeah, I I am fascinated to see with all new, all different. And like I said, I I feel that DC has a a very slight reprieve because they can blame a lot on the Burbank move. But I think I I, I feel they've. Uh, it depends how Batman v Superman Suicide Squad do. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I think because DC traditionally does get a bit of a bump in its collected edition sales when when things like this happen. Man mm-hmm. of Steel sold some Superman comics surreally, mm-hmm. uh, and so if Batman v Superman's big, mm-hmm. then it's every possibility that they could they could do you know 
they could skirt by on that. I can't help but feel that Vertigo's, you know, here's 12 new series over the course of three months, entirely comes from iZombie. Yes, I feel that uh, way too. And them going, we can, because, you know, iZombie and Lucifer, and going, oh, this is our TV department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Very strongly. Follow, you know, Unfollow yeah. gets, is getting mm-hmm. developed for a TV show already. Exactly. Yeah. Which is funny then when you look at the 12 titles they released and some of them are just like, I mean, sure, Slash and Burn can be a TV show, but the Twilight Children? Eh, maybe not. <laughs> well, it's funny because I feel like Twilight Children is very much the one that on, on paper, as long as you don't necessarily know the people involved, I, per- I personally feel that that is a stealth, um, that is a stealth editorial project in the sense of... Yeah, no, no, exactly. That, you know, that's the one that they started to slip by. They're like, okay, I'll give you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'll give you something that is primed for, for adaptation. Yeah. I, if you give me, you know, this thing that is clearly, like, clearly only ever meant to be a comic. Well, well, or this idea of like, oh, it sounds, you know, it's kind of that idea of like, you look at the description. I'm convinced if you look at Twilight Children, you're like... As just the log line of it, you're like, yeah, that could be a series. I could see that. That would work. It's like it's like Broadchurch times twelve. Go with it. You know, they what they don't know is the people okaying that is like, oh, and it's being written by Gilbert Hernandez and Darwin Cook. And good luck, motherfuckers. You know, because I don't <laughs> think, but I but I really think I do think the editor person was kind of like, yeah, if you can make it sound like it's a TV pitch, we can we can get you under the line. But yeah, it's 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 very strange. Like looking across those twelve books, it, mm-hmm. it's because I think there's I think there's a lot of good work there, and I think it's you know not only the uh, Vertigo's biggest push for a while, I think mm-hmm. it's the strongest push for a while as well. Yeah, I think that, I think there's some I think there's some good stuff in there. I think I think maybe they pushed a little too much too fast. I think there's some stuff like Survivors Club that needed a stronger editorial hand, but. You know, I just, I I really, I thought the first issue of The Sheriff of Babylon is, second issue that I read just recently, is really strong, really enjoyable, far, far closer to a TV show. I, unfortunately, I, I can't imagine it being on something other than sort of like HBO, but... Oh, no, exactly. It's, you know, it's a Showtime series. Yeah, but it's, it's... Yeah. yeah. Or it's, Netflix. It's a Netflix show. <laughs> I see. This is it. I actually think the Sheriff of Babylon would be hard to do without without a certain degree of budget. Like you need the freedom, but yeah, um, the budget. But you know, where something like Survivors Club, I'm like, yeah, Survivors Club can end up on wherever, and it, it'll yeah, Survivors Club can end up in FX. You know, <laughs> right, right, exactly. It, it, it's, yeah, you know, no, it's it could like, end up anywhere. Slash and Burn. Slash and Burn could have, end up in FX. Yeah, which one's Slash uh, and Burn again? Uh, the uh, fire investigator who's also a fire maniac. <laughs> I have not heard of this book. That is too Cy, funny. Cy Spencer and Cy Spurrier or no wait. Spencer. Oh, what son of a bitch! There are two guys going by the name of Cy <laughs> in the company. Was it in industry? I, the reason that I'm laughing is uh, when I first got told about it because mm-hmm. I was doing an interview with the Hollywood Reporter. I wrote the questions thinking it was Cy Spurrier. And the yeah. person get back to me and they're like, you're talking to a different side. Ah, son of a bitch. Oh, well, good luck. May the best side win, I guess. Well, Cy, but... Cy Spencer's been around for much longer. His he name? Edited, he edited Deadline back in the day. And then he, he's done a bunch of stuff since then. Really? Okay. Yeah, he, he's uh, – do you remember uh, what's it called? Books of Magic Life During Wartime? 
Yes, I remember that title. Yes, I that was him. Uh, the oh. Vinyl Underground was him. Mm. Uh, yeah, he's done a bunch of, of Vertigo stuff. Like, really irregularly done a bunch of Vertigo stuff over the wow. years. Wow. He's like the even poorer man's Peter Milligan, basically. Yeah, he's uh, he's somewhere between Peter, Peter Milligan and uh, Peter Hogan. <laughs> so, really what you're saying is he needs to change his name to Peter, and then everything <laughs> like, would make a, a lot more Peter. sense. Yeah. Um, but no, you know, there's there's a bunch of interesting stuff in the vertical thing, but it really is hard to think that, you know, iZombie's success and the fact that Lucifer got developed didn't make someone at DC be like, sure, you guys can have some more books as long as you promise me that we can make at least one of them into a TV show. I, I Or all of them. Like I said, I have this well, sure, suspicion. But you know I mean? At least one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but what's your definition of at least one of them? Because let me tell you, I, I honestly believe that if you rewind back over the last, you know, 10 years of Vertigo books and you were going to say which one was going to end up becoming a TV series, like, I'm I, sure, I Zombie beat out Sweet Tooth, but maybe not by that much, you know? <laughs> True, and all, but I mean, again, you watch I Zombie the show, mm-hmm. and I the show shares a name and some details with the comic, right? But that's about it. I yeah. Zombie the show really is Rob Thomas being like, I can do Veronica Mars, but she eats people's brains. You say, right, right? No, no, exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I people were well aware that it was going to be. A different beast, and everyone's all okay with that because I'm assuming all everyone's getting paid. So you know, I, I and it's a fun show. Mm-hmm. You don't you're not a fan? I, I I've never watched it. Never watched it. I just I never. Honestly, it's it's one of those big shames because I remember when I was up visiting you several years ago. I think I catched at least two, if not three, of your iZombie trade paperbacks that you. You know, been comped. I was like, "Oh boy!" And they're still on the shelf. They still haven't been <laughs> you cracked. Don't and... care. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I want to. I'm like everything about the premise, and you know, uh, Chris Robson. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 a good creative team. It's a good premise. It's a fun book. Yeah, it sounds but, great. I've read descriptions of the show? issues. Yeah, TV show is not the book. Well, no, and that's it. But it's, part of me is TV like, show is also fine for what it is. Well, see, you know what I mean? Exactly. I I watched and liked Veronica Mars. I would eat. I would eat. I would watch Veronica Mars eat brains. That's that's perfectly that's perfectly doable as a TV show too. What I'm saying is, is both of those things sound perfectly fine to me. The reason why I haven't gotten into them is just my own bizarre inability to um, pay attention. I guess you know, like I've got other things to be distracted by. Yeah, you can't watch or read everything all the time. Yeah, you can't. And and given a choice between iZombie and uh, High School Debut, oh my god, am I going to choose High School Debut every time. So I guess High School Debut is a manga. It is. Oh my god, I'm so glad you asked, Graham. Uh, people who know, including you, I really, one of the, the, the things that warmed my heart in 2015 was um, my love story, with two exclamation points. Uh, and uh, it's by the stories by Kazuni Kawahara and the art is by Aruko. And I totally got this backwards, but um, in the course of jonesing and waiting for the next volume, I knew one of them had done a manga previously high school debut. 
I thought for whatever reason that it was the artist of my love story had written and drawn a manga. Um, and I, I was kind of like, huh, that's kind of interesting that they would make that switch. But weird. As it turns out, I was completely wrong. Kazuna Kawahara, who just writes my love story, actually wrote and drew high school debut. And I was like, eh, you, uh, people may also remember, thanks to these, this strange version of digital cigarette smuggling that I'm engaged in, where I am always checking out the prices of digital graphic novels on uh, Amazon so that I can then turn around and read them on Comixology. Toward the end of the holidays, either there was a huge sale or high school debut is normally something like $4.50 to to if you buy it for the quote-unquote Kindle and then you end up reading it on Comixology. So I'm like... $4.50, it's the holidays, I'm flush, let me get that first volume because I love my love story and I'll just wait until, you know, a dry spell and I'll give it a read. And Graham, that was terrifying because I have to tell you, I read volume one and I immediately walked over to my computer, not even, I didn't even blink, and I bought version volumes two, three, and four, like right there in Amazon. Then I walked over to the iPad and downloaded them and just started reading them the second they downloaded. So it... Wow. It was terrifying. <laughs> At that point, I was like, Their okay. mind control is working, Jeff. Yeah, seriously. I and, and I finished the fourth volume, and I got up to walk over to the computer. I'm like, okay, wait, 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 Jeff. This is a deadly, deadly road. There's – sure, there are $4.50 a piece for the first, I don't know, five or six volumes. But then they go up to six fifty, and there's something like – 14 volumes of this thing. You're oh, actually Jesus spending Christ. a lot of money at the end of it. Okay, okay. So I actually picked up volumes five and six from the library today, which I'm super excited about. High School Debut is a, a shoujo manga that is kind of, I don't know, I'm like, there's some people who've listened to the podcast who have read my love story. It's it's almost like the, in some ways, it's the weirdo gender swapped version of it. And it's, it's to me, it's got, it starts off with the, the premise of, um, oh gosh, what's her, what's her name? Haruna is this girl. It's first year of high school. She basically spent all of junior high being a jock and the star on her softball team. But the entire time she's reading, uh, romance manga. And so all she wants when she gets into high school freshman year is she wants a boyfriend and she cannot figure out she did. She has no game, so to say. So she's like, how, how do I get someone to, how, how do I get a boyfriend? She ends up, uh, hiring more or less the coolest boy in school to teach her what boys like, because of course, as a softball jock person, she's like, Oh, okay. You're my coach. Like you can coach me on, on, on how to be a girl that boys will find attractive. And then I can get a boyfriend and, and he's like, okay, whatever. But the only I'll do this, but you cannot fall in love with me because girl, that whole thing is annoying. I want nothing to do with romance. Of course he's had his own tragic backstory and she's like, sure, of course. And then, you know, as of course, consider, yeah, I, I... one of the things that's great about the series is volume one is them meeting, making the pact, him, you know, beginning this process of teaching her. And I guess the thing that's interesting to me is, is that rather than being kind of the sexist manga setup that you would think where he's like, oh, uh, 
guys like it when you push the boobs up or anything like that. It's he's he's actually, of course, a really good guy, even though he's super cool. And all of his friends who are incredibly super attractive and well off are actually really good, sweet people, too. And so it's a little bit of that, like, she suddenly has this circle of friends, but more to the point in the course of her, him trying to, you know, she, he's, he's like, what kind of boys do you like? And she's like, I don't know. He's like, how are you going to, would you just go out with the very first person that would come out and ask you out? And he, she's like, I guess, you know, it, one of the things that's great is she's so good natured and determined, but also kind of a simpleton, which of course is, you know, all the great manga comedy, you know, relies on a very simple character. Not a simpleton in the sense that she can't feed or dress herself, but she's basically a simple character without guile, uh, but a good heart. And that makes her, of course, the perfect manga hero. Um, and yet, weirdly enough, reading the book, I was struck by how uh, much I emotionally identified with her. Because, I mean, like, you know... At least for me, I very much had flashed back vividly to my junior, mortifying junior high and high school years where I just had a crush on just any girl, every girl, and wanted a girlfriend so bad and was just crushing on everyone. But of course, there was nothing, you know, part of why I wasn't given any time of day was the fact that there was no there there to me. I wasn't, it wasn't just that I didn't have game. It was also just the fact that my, that level of kind of uh, desperation, there was something that's not sincere in it, you know? And so her actually having a coach that teaches her who she really is and who she really likes and what kind of boyfriend she likes. Um, I really, a really resonated with me and B what's great is, is that really means like as early as volume three, you have her going like, Oh shit, I'm really in love with my coach. And it's the one thing he told me I couldn't do. And now what the hell do I do with that? With these two conflicting parts, um, you know, situations that I, you know, where I can't be true to both. Just awesome, Graham. The stuff is uh, just was, that was my manga crack uh, over, over our little break. So um, thank God I was able to check volumes five and six out of the, the library. Cause I really had that thing of like, I put in the request and I had to wait something like really short for the San Francisco public library, like two days for them to get the hold copies in. And, um, but I swear at the end of day one, I was like, maybe I can just, maybe, maybe I'll buy them, but I'll, and I'll put in the order for the next volumes so that when I finish these volumes digitally, the next volumes will be waiting for me. And thank God that got derailed. So so I have to ask, have you already ordered the next volumes of the library? Uh, no, but I probably will do so tomorrow because I literally only picked these sons of bitches up today. And of course, I didn't have time to, to read them before we talked. So, um, by the time I get through them and blah, 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 I think if I put in the order tomorrow, everything, I'll, I'll be on a good roll at that point. So what's also great is they are not especially new manga. Uh, in fact, these are pretty beat up, but, um, so that I don't, I, even though it was an incredibly popular series, I do not think that there will be a lot of uh, 
Exactly. You're not going to get to like the second last volume and then 22 people are ahead of you in the list and you're like, what? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, exactly. The library system, the, how brutal it is. Uh, well, there's other there's other manga I can talk about or other comics, but man, let's let's flip it back to you, Graham. What have you been reading recently apart from a shit ton of Teen Titans? I'm really not joking by saying I've been reading Teen Titans almost predominantly. Okay. That's not true. I, I've been catching up with a lot of Valiant stuff as well. I see. Um, in part because I haven't – I really was a few months behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also in part because I saw people complaining that no Valiant title showed up in comic book resources uh, top 100. Mm. Um, and then I saw backlash to those complaints by people essentially saying, well, why should they? Mm. Which left me in a oh I sh- first of all uh, I should read those comics like I have those comics I should read those comics mm-hmm. but also uh, are there really one hundred better comics out there than any of these comics right oh worth the point are the titles that actually appear on the list mm-hmm. all better than these comics mm-hmm. um and uh, no is the answer mm-hmm. I it would surprise no one to discover that I do not agree with a lot of what is on CBR sub 100. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an interesting sort of thought experiment to go through the entire line and, and realize also where my head's at with Valiant right mm-hmm. now. Like, you know, what titles actually have my interest and what titles are basically there through momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, with Unity finishing, I think I, uh, you know, I, where I paying money for these and not getting them as comps, mm-hmm. I'd probably only be buying a handful. I'd probably only be buying uh, Ninjak, which surprises the hell out of me, but there you go. Um, the new Eternal Warrior series mm-hmm. and uh, the new Doctor Mirage series, mm-hmm. and I think everything else I could I could quite happily uh, go to what is essentially my Marvel model of waiting till the trade comes out and getting it at the library. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was interesting because I still think that overall they're a very good line. Right. But also how easy it would me, be for me to drop off of some of the books of that line. Mm-hmm. It, it was, was really interesting to me as well. Now, and is that because you don't, you're just not interested in what they're doing? Or I, again, this is something that we've talked about at several, several points during this podcast or is it closer to me where it's just there's no there's a failure to attach uh i guess to, uh, the, to there's, the I, there, there's there's a failure to attach not even to the characters but for example imperium which i feel is a really good first arc mm-hmm. uh, I came out of a very strong end of harbinger mm-hmm. the the momentum feels lost to me mm-hmm. uh, i feel that that it's there is an awful lot of potential in that book Mm-hmm. And where the book is going is playing for time rather than actually exploring that potential. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm uh, that that's a very easy way to lose my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, thing you know, other ones like Time Time Walker's done. Time Walker's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quantum and Woody never really had my attention in the first place. Like I read it, but I was never really engaged that much. Right. Um, you know, uh, there there Bloodshot is good for what it is, but not good enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely, I would say, the strongest of Jeff Lemire's current work. But that, for me, is also like, because he's up against, you know, extraordinary X-Men. <laughs> uh, you know? 
Um, yeah, it's, it's it's weird. I feel that the line is is moving away from me, hmm. uh, which is it's it, it's fine, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it's uh, you know compared with how I felt about the line this time last year, when I yes. happily being like people should read this. What? Mm-hmm. Now I'm very much you know if you like these sort of comics, you like these comics, right? Hmm. Uh, which is uh, it's fine, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 yeah. I, you know, otherwise, uh, I've been reading some prose. I've been reading non-comics. What? What are those? I get that done. I read the. Did I tell you I read the Elvis Costello book? Uh, you didn't tell me, but your Tumblr told me. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's a very interesting book because uh Elvis Costello seemed very interested in telling me about his relationship with his father and not about anything else other than he knows some famous people. <laughs> but it did really make me want to listen to Elvis Costello music. Right. Well, so job done. Mission accomplished. If yeah. that book was written with the intent of bumping up his record sales, I think it's pretty, <laughs> like, if other people respond the way I did, not that I bought them because I, I had a bunch of it, but... um but it really it made me go, oh, yeah, I haven't listened to that in ages. When was the last time I listened? Oh, I should listen. So I really did go through a period of just like, oh, Elvis Costello. Uh, but it's it's not a good book. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an easy read. I got through it super quickly. Mm-hmm. But, but it's very shallow. And there's things that he clearly does not want to talk about. So, for example, his second marriage gets maybe three paragraphs in the entire book. Oh, to Kate... Reardon? Was he married before that? Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, like, I can imagine so where he would Kate, Kate Reardon is basically in there, and maybe half of what he writes is basically like, she was one of the Bogues. <laughs> Seriously, it's really weird. Like, that is weird, because they were together for, for a long time. time. A long time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, hey, everybody, guess who talked to both of those people? That's right. Um, during my time uh, as a switchboard operator at the Mondrian Hotel on uh, the oh, I Sunset loved, Strip. I love Jeff's switchboard adventure stories. Yeah. And in fact, let me tell you, it's a shame because that was right at the height. Uh, I mean, I had my switchboard adventures over at, uh, at a different hotel when I was a switchboard operator. And then uh, what happened was I, I moved to a different department uh, in the same hotel chain, and then they needed – I was basically a replacement switchboard person. So the Mondrian Hotel, which was an amazing place, and I, there's a, a lot of stories that I sort of want to tell that would probably see some amazing legal action. But it was the Musician's Hotel. So, like – REM came in there. I remember like, oh, my God, I could what? actually t- – Yes. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to actually talk to Ms. Michael Stipe and be like, I'm sorry, Mr. Stipe. There's no messages for you at this time, you know, or even like, uh, uh, Mr. Stipe, uh, the, the following messages came in. Uh, uh, Peter Buck called at 3.23 p.m. And, oh, my God, this is happening to me. Like, but no, what happened was – this is great. Uh, <laughs> Michael Stipe checks into the Mondrian Hotel and – Set and basically is like, I want a do not disturb that is 24 hours around the clock. So no calls come in to me. Uh, 
I do not want maid service of any kind during that seven days. Nobody can step in that room. And as far as I know, like, so I was just like, what was he doing? Yeah, exactly. What was he doing? I think I, I have heard from other accounts that, that he is, he is sort of a very shy person and was not so crazy about the, the effects of fame per se. Um, and so therefore, and let's face it. I mean, he was of the stripe that that like I, I to to jump back. I remember being a switchboard dude at the other hotel when Sinead O'Connor uh, stayed at the hotel, and of course I'm like, oh, Sinead O'Connor, such a huge crush on her, you know. And it really was just at the height of her heightest tidiness because it was post nothing compares to you and uh, you know Sinead, and and oh my God, she had. So many crazy people in the lobby waiting for her to see her, to touch her, to smell her. I mean, hordes. And I remember this one guy actually went to the phone and was like, uh, Sinead O'Connor's room, please. And of course, we were like, I'm sorry, Ms. O'Connor is not in right now. Could I take a message? And he literally dictated a message to me. Was thank God it was not long, but it was like Sinead, I need you to come down to the lobby. You are the only person on the earth who can save me. And I'm like, uh, oh my God, do you want to leave a return number with that? Like, because I, I really was. So, so there are people. Anyway, Elvis Costello was staying there under under a name. It was like Squeaky Wentworth, or it was it was it was definitely it was ironic for a man who's you know could have gone under his own name and nobody would have known. It was one of the Stooges. I wish I could remember which one it was. It was, it, it, it was something like Shemp Howard, you know? And the idea was uh, anyone calling for Shemp Howard, you had to f- get their name and then ring through to the suite and tell them that the person was on the line. Um, so, so my interaction with Elvis Costello, a guy that I worshipped for that point – nigh on a decade was <laughs> I answer the phone and this voice is like, yeah, Shemp Howard's room, please. And I'm like, may I ask who's calling? He's like, no, this is Shemp Howard. Put me through to Mrs. Howard now. And I'm just like, all right, you motherfucker who won't even follow your own rules. One moment, please. So that's my Elvis <laughs> Costello story. Kate Reardon, that's though, she was she was sweet. She really was. On the phone, she was always like, oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, I'll take the call. Oh, thanks very much. Ta. You know, that kind of thing. And, of course, having seen her in Gregory's Girl, it's kind of like, and I love you, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She was a Gregory's Girl? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's like the girl who takes up with Gregory in Gregory's Girl. Short skirt. The, the like, you know. You say that like I can remember Gregory's Girl. Oh, my God. Gregory. Part of me is like, uh, she was the one who played goalie, I think, is 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 her. Unless I'm confusing that with, no, maybe Winona Ryder played the goalie in Lucas, and I'm getting them confused. Um, <laughs> can you can you, can you you hold for one, just one second, Graham? Okay. Graham, are you there? Jeff. Yes. Yes. So, listen, uh, that was not comic book related in the least, and unfortunately... Um, you off the phone right now. I do. I've got. I've got such a hard stop. It is a much earlier hard stop than I thought it was. So there was there was a moment where I'm like, "Why is my wife staring at me in that unique way?" So um, <laughs> that that's wonderful, Jeff. 
I will say this, and we will end the podcast then. I've just used that gap to look up IMDb, and Kate Reardon was not in Gregory's Girl. What? Are you sure? No, that is yes. not true. That is yes. not true. Yes. No. no, that is not true. She's made two movies called Straight to Hell and The Courier, and that's it. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Because <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but that would... That that on the one hand, part of me would not be surprised uh, if that was the case. On the other hand, are you part thinking of me, Sarah Grogan? No, no, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Kato Reardon, right? The no, wait, that's not right. Who's this? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, 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 I'm serious. I'm like, uh, is it is it? It's <laughs> she, Kato Reardon. She's, she's not in Gregory's Girls, Jeff. She, she on is... that bombshell, listeners. Mm. Uh, Jeff and I are going to wrap it up while Jeff deals with the shock. Um, I am so sad because. because because we are doing it so quickly, I will say very quickly, we are at waitwhatpodcast.com, where you can find show notes for each episode we do, including this one. We are at Tumblr, uh, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, and I've been putting a lot of stuff up there over the last week, including some random-ass stuff coming up next week. All I'm saying is, if you like Marvel Comics uh, credit boxes from the 1980s, look forward to that. Oh my uh, god. We are on Stitcher, we're on iTunes, uh, we're on Twitter, at WaitWhatPodcast. Jeff is on Twitter, at LazyBastid, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I am at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. We are on Patreon, because we are a Patreon-supported podcast. We are at patreon.com forward slash podcast. Jeff probably has some numbers, but we have no time to do it for once. Yes. Uh, I think that's it. Do we need anything else, Chef, seeing as we are rushing towards the conclusion? On and the plus age, you just get to hear about my bicycle uh, lack of adventures. Oh my god, on. yes. So, this episode has been worth it for that alone. Oh, we will be wait. back next week, and we will be doing a backs building. That is correct. Uh, do you want to tell them what issues we're covering? Do you remember? Yeah, well, I want to say it's 103 through 112, but I might be misremembering. They'll be right in the show notes. Yeah, okay. I'll definitely check it out. But yeah, I think that sounds right to me. <laughs> Listeners, you can tell Jeff actually <laughs> learns what issues he has to be reading from this point on. Uh, yeah, all right. Um, Graham! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Happy New Year. We hope you had a good holiday season. And we're looking forward to the worlds that's coming in 2016. <laughs> everyone, bye! Ah, Graham McMillan, you superhero. Superhero.